What's up? Welcome to Sweathead. I've got Kai Chow all the way from Sydney. Uh, Kai is a media consultant and freelance journalist. And if you're in Australia, you might have seen him in at least one of his three lives. Those lives include being on TV, uh, Sky News, and also contributing to the Financial Review, being on the ABC, probably visuals and audios there. Kai, is that right? Yeah, I've done, I've done it all, Mark. I've done uh, TV, radio, and uh, a bit of writing in the old school papers. Yes, and before that, you were at KPMG, Comsec, and Macquarie Bank. And what I wanted to talk to Kai about today, because I do feel there are a lot of people who do strategy work or who want to do strategy work that listen to this podcast and many of whom, I think there's two things that we, we're going to touch on that will be relevant to them. One is how you do your job, how you approach a topic, how you break it down, how you follow a lead, so to speak. And then the second one is you've made some non-conventional career and life choices to break out of a corporate conventional career into something that's way more expressive. And I can kind of see that artistry from afar uh, and, I, and I think that's something that a lot of strategy people need to do or at some point in their lives they are going to have to do because the strategy careers right now are a little unpredictable. You know, they're, they're moving a little bit more to the freelance world or into companies that aren't used to having them. So we're going to focus on these topics. Kai, first of all, how did you get into news and journalism? <laughs> well... I had never really thought about working in news or journalism. In fact, I used to have a pretty dim view of it, Mark. Um, and, and to be honest, it's still not a perfect profession. Um, but I knew that I liked presenting. Uh, like I, I'd done a lot of public speaking even, even when I was a kid um, and at, at university when most people would shy away from having to do the presentations, I, I would be loving it. Um, in fact, I'd be pretty bad at the other parts of the university work, but uh, yeah, we'll get to that. Um, and uh, But I never really seriously pursued media. I sort of dabbled because I, I didn't know anyone in the profession and I came from a fairly conservative background. Uh, you know, I, 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 you know, culturally, I came from a background and also the high school I went to uh, heavily tended to steer people towards being really good at maths and science um, and I wasn't. Um, but I gave it a shot anyway. Um, so because of that, I didn't really explore journalism for a long time until in my late 20s, I just happened to meet a guy at a networking event who was a journalist at SBS, which is uh, the multicultural uh, public broadcaster here in Australia. Big and fan, big fan, SBS. <laughs> anyway, he uh, said, oh, I work for SBS Radio. And I thought, I didn't even know SBS had a radio station. Um, but he and I um, became friends. And he says, look, you should give it a go. And at the time, I was in a journalism, uh, sorry, I was in a corporate career. I was making pretty good money. Um, I was interested in media. Um, and then he told me how much money they made in journalism and I seemed to lose, lose interest very quickly. Uh, that was the top of mindset I was in back then. And uh, so anyway, I uh, found that the marketing work I was doing uh, for an investment bank wasn't really uh, what I had in mind. It wasn't really, actually, I wasn't enjoying it at all. Um, it just wasn't the kind of work that I wanted to do. Um, so I um, went traveling around the world for half a year. I came back. And then I called him up and I said, you know what? Um, well, maybe I didn't mention this bit to him. I just said, I have no job at the moment anyway. So what have I got to lose? Sure, I'll come along and give it a try. So he lined up some work experience for me. 
So I was the 28-year-old work experience kid um, who was just going in there. And by my second day, Mark, uh, my second day, I thought, I can do this and I really like it. Mm-hmm. I'd always had a little bit of an interest. I'd had an interest in news and current affairs, don't get me wrong. But the idea of working in it was not something I'd considered because I, my impression of it was that it was either trashy tabloid journalism or it was biased journalism and I didn't like either. So yeah. <laughs> then I realised that I could go into the industry um, and be neither of those things. And what kind of work did you do in your first six months at SBS? Uh, yeah, so um, it was radio reporting, radio news. So in the morning, you would go through and see what kind of stories were making news. Uh, you'd look at media releases uh, that had been sent in from various organisations trying to get themselves on your channel um, or on your station, uh, and you'd decide. Um, and and so I had a lot of on-the-job learning. So journalism tends not to be something where you get formal training. It tends to be either sink or swim or sink, and occasionally one of the other older reporters will give you a pull-up every now and then so you can breathe. And uh, well, I had a very nice team around me of veteran journalists um, who you know, gave me a lot of their time. And so, yeah, look, um, a a little bit of a learning curve, but not too long a learning. It didn't take too long, really, to get the basics, because if you look fundamentally at what are the skills of a journalist that are required, it's, I mean, obviously, I mentioned the presenting and, you know, especially for broadcasting on TV and radio, that's useful. But ultimately, the skill of a journalist or what's required of a journalist is you need to just be really, really inquisitive. You need to be the kind of person that asks annoying questions all the time and doesn't let things go. And from that point of view, it came relatively quickly to me. It's not something you need to necessarily do a university course for. That, so, I've, you know, I've never done a journalism qualification or degree. Interesting. That's, I, I'm, I often write little notes and I've got three or four topics just from the past couple of minutes of you talking. It's funny. So I used to do a hip hop radio show at 2SER at the top of UTS. It was called The Mothership Connection. I was, I was a second generation host and every Tuesday for five years, I would turn up with my very heavy bag of vinyl and CDs and cassettes and reel to reel tapes for at one point, which I'd often record interviews on in the middle of the night. Uh, and uh, I had, had, had someone help me on the show for a while, and his, and his uh, yeah, his, and his name was Mike, and he studied journalism. And Miguel de Souza, who you might or might not know, he's he's been around the news world and the community radio world for ages in Sydney. He was the guy who hosted the radio show before me. I'm going to talk to him soon. Uh, and uh, anyway, Mike, who was helping me out, he'd done this journalist. Uh, he was studying journalism, and I remember in our first year, I was tw- I think I was 20 at the time. Uh, in our first year we had a, a couple of guest rappers visit from the States and Mike interviewed them. And he was a little bit, he didn't want to, you said, and you use the words annoying and don't let things go. And he kind of, <laughs> he kind of got journalistic on them and was asking, he was pressing them. And I'm, I don't mean to bring this up in a mean or silly way. It was like, it's weird memory. It was a big, powerful part of my life in some respects and he kept asking them like why do you keep releasing music and I because I think the implication was that there was too they were releasing too much music at the time Uh, and then the next week they made a diss track against us and uh, it kind of blew up my my local circle and all kinds of things have you did you find in your first like how did you calibrate on how much to annoy people when you're interviewing them (laughs) 
<laughs> well, the question. Look, okay, okay. I, 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 okay, a couple of small little things here um, that uh, I've just thought of now after what you've said. Uh, so to SERFM, that was actually where I actually had my first ill-fated dabble in oh. the... Uh, I mentioned dabble before. And the reason was, Mark, was because people had always told me, Kai, you've got a great voice for voiceovers. And I bought into that. And so I went there thinking, oh, man, I've got a great voice. I'm going to nail this. Um, and I recorded a couple of voiceovers, like a, a chap there, Michael Jones, very nice guy, yeah, uh, yeah. gave me a couple of reads to do. I was terrible at them. I, I thought I was going to be dynamite. I listened back to them and I was so mortified at how bad my voiceovers were um, that that was one of the reasons I just said, you know what, I'm going to take this corporate thing for a while. Yeah. <laughs> so how, old, how old are you at that stage? Oh, well, no, I, I was, um, I was, uh, I just graduated. Um, so I was in my first year. So I was in accounting, you know, and I knew that I was interested in doing media or presenting of some kind. And I'd done some other really lame um, attempts, uh, Mark. So for example, I think uh, there was uh, uh, some kind, I think MTV had some kind of open auditions at a, mm. at a Westfield shopping centre and I gave that a shot. And honestly, like I was up there for about eight seconds when they pretty much said, next, <laughs> right? And there was, seriously, there was probably about 1,500 wide-eyed kids. And I didn't even have much of an interest in music then, right? Yeah. But I just said, hey, this is could be a shot, you know? Um, so I was very amateurish in my early attempts at presenting and that to SCRFM experience was something that reminded me, oh, yeah, this needs some work. <laughs> Take some work. Um, and as what for I that... Like, other, okay. What I liked yeah. is that you used a voice over voice to imitate <laughs> people telling you you had a voice over voice. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Well, well I, you, you know, my dream had been, I, I'd always heard that guy who does the announcements at the start of the boxing, Michael Buffer, you know, the, let's get ready to rumble. And I said, I want that job. I just, I just show up there, get paid a fortune. I say one phrase and that's amazing. That's, that's what I wanted to do. That could um, still happen. It could. It could. In fact, ironically, I actually am getting some uh, voiceover training after over a decade in broadcast journalism. And it is an area that I'm still keen to explore. Um, but anyway, um, but the other thing uh, you mentioned about how do you get the balance right between annoying and being too pushy. So look, um, okay, the other key skill of a journalist um, is you have to be able to listen. So part of being inquisitive is not just asking annoying questions. You have to listen to the answer. And the reason why we might keep at someone is if we feel that person's just not answering the question. That's a bit different to just asking question after question for the sake of it. But there can be a fine line that you need to strike. And I suppose, Mark, you know, the way you... Look, journalism is meant to be authentic. A radio conversation, a television interview, these are meant to be authentic. So you really, as a principal, should try to treat it like a normal conversation you have with someone. Look at them. And if you can tell they're, you know, sort of rocking back a little bit and 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 that you're starting to get those um, quiet nods rather than <laughs> actual answers, you know you're doing too much of the talking yourself. Mm-hmm. And do you, so, do, you ever, do you ever go in with an angle or... Maybe the better question is how much of an angle do you go in? And like from like, I haven't dealt that much with journalists in America. I used to deal with them more in Australia and in America every now and then some Australian will do something crazy in the advertising industry or someone will open a new agency and I'll get an email. What do you think of this Australian? And I'm like, God, that you, I'm in such a niche over here. 
it's quite funny. <laughs> but like, because um, you're the expert talent. That's 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 why someone would go to um, you for that. Uh, Kai, I've got way more to offer than just gossipy opinions about other Australians who are trying to survive in a foreign country. But how, how, much, <laughs> how much of an angle would you go in with into an interview? Does it depend on the publication or the, the television yeah. station that you're working with as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, um, well, and also what your current knowledge is of the subject matter, right? So if you're being allocated a story, and this is pretty common in journalism, to be thrown something that you really haven't heard of before. Uh, journalism, in a way, is the art of trying to become a five-minute expert. So all of that cramming that I used to do in university and high school that used to drive my stress levels through the roof um, actually uh, came in incredibly useful in journalism. So that's perhaps the uh, <laughs> another crucial skill of being a journalist, uh, being able to cram, right? Um, so part of it will depend on your knowledge. And increasingly these days, um, and I think perhaps a lot of people would have noticed this. Um, see, journalism has changed, right? Um, and people are becoming, journalists rather, are becoming um, a bit more opinionated. Um, it tends to be a little bit less on, um, you know, reporting facts and, and, and leaving it to people to make up their own minds, although that absolutely certainly happens, especially with veteran journalists. Um, and it tends to be a little bit more now about activism, so you now have um, a lot more publications, especially new media, especially some of the newer outlets that really don't make any two bones about the fact that they have a particular um, position or ideology. Um, and when that happens, you're much more likely to have an angle. But I can tell you just purely from a practical point of view, Mark, um, I would, look, I mean, if, if it, look, I would say, say, print reporters or people working on a feature, something that doesn't need to be turned around within three or four hours, which often in broadcast journalism, you have to. Um, people that have a lot bit more time, um, often they are going to go into a story without an angle. They will genuinely spend time to understand the subject matter, try to find something new, look and explore um, with the person they're interviewing. Um, however, in broadcast journalism, especially the traditional form where, for example, I might be given, hey, uh, I might have my story approved at 1pm, as in the story that I'm going to be working on, and then I'm going to, and then I'll have to have it on air by 5pm, four hours later, and in that time, I need to have interviewed two to three people, right, so hoping that they're available in that four-hour time slot, as well as writing up the story myself, like, and then actually editing all of that um, sound or, or video together, right, um, and so when that happens, um, I know it sounds terrible, but often you'll just, the journalists will often just um, figure out what angle they want, um, and then when they approach uh, the people who they're interviewing, they're going to be angling their questions to try to get uh, the answer that they want or need out of that person. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't some wriggle room for when you do the interview and something new comes up and you think, oh, that's interesting, that's different. Uh, but when you're scrambling to meet a deadline, and this applies to so much of the news that we hear, which is why people really, really need to be careful and discerning about um, news when they listen to it um, you know often um, it'll be stuff that's being pulled together pretty quickly and perhaps with a bit of a pre <laughs> and perhaps with a bit of a preconceived uh, angle um, in in mind um, yeah so uh, yeah look uh, I'm not 
proud necessarily of that aspect of the profession. Um, I think that now that we are seeing more and more podcasts, like obviously like yourself, you've probably realised with this medium, um, you can spend time and go into a bit more depth. And I think despite the fact that many people, um, I think everyone knows that journalism, what they find online is getting, is being built for shorter and shorter attention spans. You know, I, I, when I worked in video producing, digital video producing and news, um, you know, we quickly found anything over three to four minutes, forget it. No one was going to watch it. Um, anything past 90 seconds, they weren't going to watch that far. Um, and so sometimes journalists will despair about how everything has to become shorter and shallower. But I think that the rise of podcasts and the fact that they are long form, right, that has shown that there is an underlying desire for depth and detail and nuance. Um, so I think that's the hopeful side of journalism. Um, you know, once you get past the kind of shouty panels and shallow, you know, shallow videos and 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 sometimes even just memes uh, that are designed to um, give give people information to to make up their minds and often what are really complex issues. Yeah, I think both things are true as far as time, which is never has there been more of an appetite for so much short stuff, but also the, the binge watching and even, I don't know if you've ever watched an Alan Curtis movie, uh, Century of Self is, is worth watching as well as hypernormalization for the listeners out there. Century of Self talks about Edward Bernays and the, the early days of public relations. Uh, and, and, and some of these things are actually really, really long. Uh, but yeah, the time, time thing's interesting. Uh, I want to go back to your first answer. You talked about liking being in front of people, liking presenting. And as you were working, that echo from when you were younger kept appearing and you had to at some point honor it, right? And so when I talk to people who are trying to work out, maybe like I said before, whether to get into advertising or a strategy career or what to do afterwards, it's so important to listen, to, to remember yourself when you're animated, which might not be in front of people. It could be drawing or I don't know, doing the headstand, whatever it is, but to really start to remember that because they they become little pieces of a puzzle that you get to reassemble <laughs> once you once you work out that school didn't finish making you and the career didn't finish making you. Were there other little things like remembering that you liked being in front of people or presenting that stirred in you in your mid to late 20s that you felt you had to honour? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I've probably mentioned uh, some of them in a way before, right? But um, so the fact that I liked, I was very comfortable with public speaking, um, the fact that I was always very inquisitive, I always asked a lot of annoying questions, um, and uh, I also loved reading and writing. Um, so when you put those key skills in, um, or, or those attributes over the course of a lifetime, I've always had them, even from when I was eight years old. Mm. In a way, I sometimes step back and I think, how did I not go into journalism earlier? I mean, and I know the answer to that question, but I think to people that are trying to decide, you know, trying to make sense of who they are and what they're best at and what they're strong at, I definitely think looking back um, from the things that have endured since childhood in your personality is, a, is, is certainly a great way um, of figuring it out. Yeah, and you, you almost have no choice but to do that. And what I find amazing is words like words, writing, reading, listening, talking, presenting. If you're a kid and you wrote those words, 
and a parent looked at it, that you'd be like, that's cool. When I write those words for myself, because I relate completely to what you're saying, they're simple and they're so powerful. They've become my entire compass. You know, how do I spend my, how do I spend my day writing words? And then how do I spend my days, in, you know, doing talks and training? And that's what I'm building my life around. And it's just an amazing, we kind of go through this complex, complicated, got to be smart and intellectual phase. And maybe you stay like that. But for me, I had to burst through it and just be brutally honest and simple about the kind of life I wanted to build. Hence things like this podcast. And, and that can be challenging, right, when you have a lot of other structures around you that don't send you that direction. And I'm going to speak to the obvious one, uh, Mark. You and I went to the same high school, right? And that high school was very well known for specialising in people who were good at maths and science and basically absolute, you know, and, and, and basically being able to get kids the, the, the highest possible um, you know, well, as it was called back then, the TER or entrance score that you needed to get into university courses, right? Um, and so it really funneled you towards um, certain ways of learning and also a lot of the kids there. I mean, and, and then you throw in, you know, in my case, it wasn't just the high school. It was also the, the, the old cliched Asian background, right? You know, where your, your, your three main uh, career choice options are doctor, lawyer and disgraced a family. Right. So, you know, so, so often we do have those constraints around us um, that get in a way. And look, I'm not necessarily saying those are that, that we shouldn't have constraints of some kind in our lives. Uh, but I, let's put it this way. It definitely slowed my entry into a profession that I now, I now wish perhaps I'd gone into a lot earlier. Did you have much negativity? Were, were people actively negative to you and about your decisions as you were making them? You mean in terms of my career? Um, in terms of that new career? Yeah, sure. Well, so I, I had two quick, <laughs> I had two career changes. Um, so when I was, um, I started off in accounting. So um, I, I, I did business and law as my two degrees at university. And so I started in accounting again, because of a bit of a lack of imagination, not really knowing anyone in media. And even though I was aware that I loved people and I wanted a profession that dealt with more of it, I just didn't have enough. I, I didn't have enough of a fire lit under me at that stage. Um, so I started in accounting. I knew I liked the humanities. And so I was able to move into marketing, which is quite different to accounting. Um, and at the time, people were going, oh, wow, what a big career change. And, and now when I look back on it, I think, well, you know what? I still stayed within the corporate world. Mm -hmm. So, well, I, in fact, uh, you know, I was doing marketing and financial services. So culturally, it wasn't that much of a big shift. Um, and then from marketing and communications, that was what got me into journalism. Um, so, look, I can tell you for each of those stages, Mark, I did get some resistance um, from well-meaning uh, family members, uh, which is pretty common, I think, with Asian kids. Um, then again, I've heard much uh, stronger stories. I've heard about kids that wanted to do a certain course. Uh, their parents would basically pre-fill in uh, the forms to go to medicine at a top university and basically force their child to sign it, <laughs> right? Um, so I didn't have that. Um, my parents just, look, many migrant parents have struggled when they came to 
when they came to the West. And so they just don't want their kids to have to go through the same struggles. They want their kids to be happy and to have the stability and certainty that they never had. And it's well-meaning, but of course the problem is is that um, a lot of their kids, like myself, uh, might have other ideas and may not value stability as high as uh, fulfillment and purpose. Uh, and you also mentioned earlier that you didn't know anyone in the profession. And I, I think about this a little bit as far as the broader creative industries where I didn't really get exposed to a lot of options growing up either. And uh, maybe I could have studied writing, but, you know, when, when things like arts or liberal arts in America, I don't know if it's called liberal arts everywhere these days or not but the idea of like studying literature or writing people would laugh at that like oh art students they just have debt and don't have jobs (laughs) (laughs) that was kind of what i i heard a little bit of and that's the i have the opposite attitude towards that now uh but how like the idea of not being exposed to options is is really critical and it's one of those thoughts that underlies the thought of diversity where proximity or being able to see someone like me in that profession and knowing that profession exists are really important for people in disadvantaged situations uh, I, I don't know if you've got a point of view on it. I don't even know what my question is. <laughs> oh, no, no, I certainly do. So, I mean, as a journalist, I've often covered um, issues around diversity. Look, it's an incredibly complex topic. In fact, you know, uh, when I eventually ever do launch my podcast, uh, identity and diversity are going to be huge topics because they are never as simple as as I think people uh, would think. So, um, for example, I think what you're referring to um, when you say um, people need to see someone like themselves in order to think they can do well in a profession, well, look, in some ways that's true. Uh, you know, I'm part of the group called Media Diversity Australia, which aims to, um, you know, improve the cultural representation um, in the Australian media, right? Um, and it's a fraught topic, Mark, because on the one hand, um, you know, of course, um, you know, someone might look, uh, some some kid might look up and go, oh, hey, you don't necessarily have to just be, you know, a beautiful blonde female to be a news reporter. You can be like an Asian guy, you know. So I was, for example, the, I was the first uh, male Chinese reporter on Australian news, right? Um, and that's the other thing, right? Um, I don't think you should ever let that be an excuse either. And um, you know, I mean, as as the old, as, you know, as the old uh, analogy goes, right? I mean, if, you know, needing someone else to go first was the most important thing, we never would have put a man on the moon, right? Well, hang on, um, hang on. But, but I think there's also a difference between an excuse and a reason. So when I'm talking about, like, when I, the thing that I was, I stump, my words always stumble around these topics. Uh, but... Uh, what I was talking about is from what I've heard from people who've done research in the space, one of the main reasons is that they, that the kids haven't seen someone like them in a certain profession, let alone even knowing about a certain profession as being a reason, not an excuse. Uh, well, Historically. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it probably depends on um, everyone's perspective, right? I mean, uh, uh, perhaps I come from that slightly more disciplinarian Asian migrant background where we're told there's no such thing as reasons, there's only excuses for not doing well. And if you're not achieving something, you just need to find a way. Um, and let's put it this way. Um, I knew of pretty much zero Chinese reporters when I went into journalism. And that 
that never deterred me. Um, so whether you'd consider, so, so I guess, you know, look, I mean, saying, telling people that they're giving themselves excuses sounds incredibly harsh, right? Um, and I suppose, um, you know, you, you sometimes need to be careful, especially around more sensitive people about um, phrasing words that way. Um, but I, I still do think that, um, you know, when it comes to diversity and representation, it's good, um, but it's, of course, good to have. And, of course, it can inspire people when they see someone like themselves doing something. But that same mentality, I think we also need to be careful about it from a diversity context, right? Because um, if, if your attitude to life is, look, um, I'm only willing to enter cultures or be part of cultures or, or professions where I can be among people like myself, uh, people need to remember that if, that if that's the attitude we're going to promote, that that's something that, for example, um, you know, white male or dominated organisations can also think, right? I mean, whereas I think what we need to understand in a truly pluralistic and diverse society, it often means we need to be willing to expose ourselves to things that make us uncomfortable. And if we expect that from... Uh, you know, for example, the cliched old white male boss, um, then we also should expect it um, from ourselves um, if we come from a migrant background and, and culturally would not necessarily be used to something. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't a role for the organisation or those who are there before us, like the so-called establishment um, at a company, to be more open-minded um, and, and, you know, um, and, and be, you know, um, and make their own um, policies and so forth to to help people feel a bit more welcome but i find generally that too much of the diversity movement today is it's pretty much 98 percent focused on here's why you minority person can't get in it's because of evil old white dude here um and i think we need a lot more emphasis on what i think many um you know say people of color want which is actually just show me how i can do it mm -hmm. Speaking of which, why doesn't Natalie Tran have her own weekly at least TV show in Australia? <laughs> Look, um, I, I couldn't say. I mean, she's got, a, she's got a huge profile, right? I mean, obviously you're referring to um, the longtime host of the YouTube uh, channel, uh, Community Channel. Um, and, yeah, she... Obviously, uh, look, I mean, there's an example, right? I mean, Natalie Tram was someone who just started her own YouTube channel um, as a way of circumventing mainstream media. And perhaps it was because she, um, partly she felt she wouldn't be able to be welcome in there. And partly because in some ways, and this is why, where I, I do agree, um, perhaps uh, with many people in the diversity movement, um, because there was a resistance to people who are not, um, you know, blonde, white females um, to entering presenting. Um, and she's obviously done really well there. Now, as for why she hasn't entered the mainstream, I, I can't say because I don't know her well enough, other than to say, Mark, that Australian media today does now entertain a lot of people from an Asian background. I mean, if you look at, um, you know, a popular news and current affairs show like... Um, the project um, on Channel Ten, which is now owned by CBS, Walid Ali is a um, you know he's 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 a Muslim um, you know and he's clearly not of a white background and he won a Logie in Australia and while he might be quite controversial, he's clearly 
clearly um, shown that you can be, um, you know, a brown person, so to speak, um, and be on primetime Australian television. And we're seeing more and more news presenters also, um, you know, from that background making, um, you know, including myself, um, who have been able to get jobs in that profession. I love it. I love it. And I was just curious to hear what you would say. Now, Litran once interned me because she was a bit bored. (laughs) (laughs) Can I say back? She's a talent. Back in 2002, when was it? No, maybe it was around 2000. um, Oh, sorry. Yeah, I I went on a trip. Um, You're going to like this one. When I was in journalism, I I once went on a trip to Israel uh, with an Australian-Israel um, commercial networking group, basically. Um, and when I was at Petra, right, um, which, of course, many people may remember is the site of that temple from the Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade movie, right, um, I met Natalie Tran there. I just ran into her. And I'm telling you, I'm pretty sure that, you know, as extremely large amount of Asian males uh, back then had a giant crush on Natalie Tran and having my photo with her to this day is still one of my most commented Facebook photos um, over the, you know, uh, the very long time I've been on that platform. <laughs> uh, I mean, she's a talent. She, her brain, she's an intellectual savage and I'm going to try to, she's coy, but I'm going to try to convince her to have a chat with me on here, but she's, she's awesome. And I hope everyone gets to find out about her. Uh, what about let's talk a little bit more actually a couple last questions about that career shift because your career shift modeled a, a personal shift like a shift of identity you know how how long into that new reporting sbs gig did you really start to identify as a journalist look um on on, on look i, I mean the the slightly unbelievable answer would have been my second day, right? Um, because as I told you, like a lot of the things that journalists do, reading, writing, inquiring, having an interest in news and current affairs, and in my class, um, in my case, um, public speaking for broadcast purposes, those were things that I'd done my whole life, Mark, right? And so um, when it happened, I just thought, actually, I feel like I've been here all along. Now, That's just from that mental point of view. Of course, it takes time to build up your skills as a journalist, right? And to understand interview technique better, um, how to craft stories together better and a range of different technical skills that you need as a a journalist. Um, You know, so I, you know, but in terms of, you know, for example, when I'd start telling people, oh, I'm a journalist, right? Well, I think anytime you make a career change, there's always going to be that initial stage where you're a little bit bashful about saying, oh, I'm a journalist when you've only just entered the profession. Um, but to me, it came really quickly, really quickly. I realised this is the right career for me. There was no thought of, oh, well, let's see how this one goes and let's move on and then I'll just try another new profession and go for my fourth different career. Like this one was very quickly, hey, this is, this is where I'm meant to be. That's awesome. What, what is a journalist? Yeah, it's such, a, it's such a ambiguous term these days, right? Um, I mean, 
you know, in the old days, of course, people would think of a journalist as a news reporter um, or someone who wrote for a newspaper or presented on television. Um, but I think that that has changed so much with the advent, oh, I said the advent of the internet, which has been around for over 20 years, right? Um, you know, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I would say that, um, I mean, you know, for example, I'll see people who have their own YouTube channels. They will refer to themselves as a journalist or someone that has their own podcast. They'll refer to themselves as a journalist. And look, I haven't seen, I, I, I'm, I'm, I haven't seen the dictionary definition of the word journalist, um, but I would say to me, um, you know, it is, um, you know, someone that finds a topic and researches that topic and, and tries to explore and uncover and find out about a much about, uh, find out as much about that topic as possible and then present it to the wider public. So a key um, job, <laughs> a key uh, job description, uh, uh, you know, uh, dot point there, I think would be for a journalist is someone who is able to take large amounts of complex information and distill it into a form that is very easy for non-journalists and the wider public to understand or for their audience to understand. So yeah, it's sort of uh, condensing and uh, vetting and scrutinising and analysing and then uh, crafting of information for people's yeah. consumption. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a huge overlap there with what strategy folks do with re researching and gathering ton, a ton of stuff and having to distill it into maybe a sentence or a paragraph, hopefully not 100 slides, people, but into a, <laughs> into a small thing. You mentioned earlier the pressure to become a five-minute expert. <laughs> so, you know, I'm going to ask you, how does one become a five-minute expert? <laughs> okay. Um, so, to be very clear, you're not going to become an expert in five minutes. You just need to become convincing enough uh, during that time. Now, I know this sounds terrible, right? But it's, it's the reality. You are not an expert. Journalists are usually not experts. Now, they can gain a very high level of understanding in a particular subject matter. For example, if you're a property reporter, for example, you will get to understand a lot about property and often enough that you can eventually enter the profession yourself when you decide you want to start making money uh, rather than working in journalism, right? So that's entirely possible. Um, but it's definitely not a prerequisite um, to be as expert, say, as the people who you're speaking to. Mm -hmm. um, um, and there is a bit of an element of, um, I'm trying to think of words that involve, that don't involve crouch, uh, quoting, um, you know, Groucho Marx about faking sincerity and how you've got it made if you can do it. <laughs> um, but um, look, um, you know, you, you need to be able to understand a subject matter enough um, that you can ask some sensible questions on it. Um, and if you didn't, don't quite make it there in time by your deadline, right, um, then, you, then you, you do need a little bit of performance um, in your arsenal as well. Now, as for how you can achieve at least that requisite level of knowledge, because you can't utterly fake it. I mean, I've been caught sometimes. Like, for example, I've had um, one of my news presenters cross to me when I was a reporter and ask me about something I knew absolutely nothing about like nothing 
right? I hadn't done any research. It was, it was, you know, there'd been a bit of a miscommunication about what they were meant to talk about. And being, and being a reporter sometimes is, is the art and being a performer, in a way, is the art of being able to talk yourself out of a situation like that. And there are some tricks you can do to do that. Or not tricks, but, you know, there's ways that you can sort of evade um, that type of question so you don't look like a fool and embarrass you and the presenter who's interviewing you. Um, is, is there a story or two that, well, let's go. Is there a story that's close to your heart that you might remember forever? Can you recall it and then talk us through what it was and how you approached tackling the topic? Ooh, um, yeah, look, uh, oh, gee, look, okay, I can give you, look, in terms of ones that are close to my heart, um, perhaps I have yet to tell that story. And perhaps when I start my podcast, that's what that will become an outlet for. But I can tell you there are some stories that perhaps affected me um, more than others because of the connection I had to the person I interviewed. Um, and also that may have had a bit of a connection for me as well. So I'll give you one example, right? Um, so <laughs> so as a, I, um, during my time at the ABC um, as a radio and current affairs reporter, um, one of the stories we came across, so what happens often in, at the beginning of, a, of, of the news day is that the reporters all gather around and people just toss around ideas for what stories each reporter is going to cover, right? Sometimes you'll just be allocated a story, but often there's a bit of room. And um, I was approached by my executive producer at the time and he said, look, Kai, um, Pope Francis has gotten in trouble um, with, um, you know, some senior Catholics uh, they've written a letter or pretty much it seems to be accusing him of heresy because um, he's gone soft on um, divorced couples in the Catholic Church, right? Um, he's letting them receive Holy Communion, right? Um, so for those who don't know, um, you're only meant to receive Holy Communion as a Catholic um, if, um, you know, you're in communion with the, like, uh, if you're in communion with the church, which means that Catholics who divorce but haven't like divorce in the secular law but haven't had theirs um but haven't had the church itself recognize um their separation in the form of an of an annulment are not supposed to receive holy communion and for many catholics this is quite a painful experience right um because they're not able to be part of the community then be in a way be part of the church in the way they want to be um, so he said, oh, you know, so can you find out a little bit more, you know, can, can you just look this story up? You know, it's obviously, um, you know, he's a high profile Pope who's often created controversy within the church and outside the church. Um, so I spoke to a, 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 a woman who had been um, civilly um, divorced um, for a long time. And for something like eight years, uh, she hadn't taken Holy Communion. Um, and the fact that Pope Francis now was starting to open the door to letting individual bishops and locations decide, oh, look, um, you know, it's up to you to decide whether those kind of people can receive communion while they're waiting for their annulment to come through, which in her case had taken eight to 10 years because, um, you know, she, I think she'd gone through a Latin American court or, or like, a, you know, through a, through a Latin American bishop or so forth. And, and the period... Of, the bureaucracy was just interminably slow there. Um, and so she really welcomed that. And she was quite emotional about her experience. Um, and I'm Catholic myself. Um, 
And it's really quite different. <clears throat> Sometimes when you, you have that personal experience with a story um, and hear it from that uh, point of view. Um, but yeah, look, you know, that story had other dimensions to it, like the fact that some saw it as Pope Francis trying to decentralise the power of the Vatican, which some saw as a good thing, some saw as a bad thing, because it could mean you'll just have all of these different rules for all different Catholic dioceses around the world. And, you know, but, but that's something that really stuck out for me, um, you know, being able to speak to someone about that personal experience. Hmm. Uh, and what about, do you ever watch yourself back or listen to yourself back? Yeah, what, what, uh, I do. Do you, do you do it in a structured way? And what, what happens to the voices <laughs> in your head when you're doing that? What do they say? Do you like your own voice? Do you like how you do your journalism? Okay. Uh, so I don't love the sound of my own voice. I, so I, 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 I see you sound different, um, as, as you would no doubt know, um, being a podcaster, you sound different um, when you're speaking um, than you do when you hear yourself back. Um, and that's because the human skull, um, you know, you're, you're hearing yourself through your skull um, when you're speaking in, you know, in, in, in real time, so to speak. Um, whereas, you know, listening back later, it's how other people hear. And I didn't like, I still don't really like the way I sound. When I've done a bad live news cross. So often I'm brought on to news channels to do commentary on some news and current affairs. Sometimes um, it, it won't go that great, right? I mean, and, and not necessarily because the host has interrogated me or, or done anything wrong. It's just sometimes, oh, I may have flubbed things or forget what I wanted to talk about or, or, or hadn't focused on what I really wanted to talk about. Um, and when it's gone that bad, I know this sounds terrible, but I won't rewatch that segment. When really, of course, that's the way you learn. And so over time, more and more journalists have to force themselves um, to confront um, their pieces when they are eventually published. And I can tell you it's the same with newspaper reporters. Um, I've heard some of them that say, I won't read my article back later on. Um, and often that's because um, they've had to pass it to an editor who will absolutely, <laughs> will almost rewrite it sometimes, right? Um, and so it can be confronting, even for journalists, as opinionated as they are, um, to, to look back at their own work. But really, of course, it's such an important thing to do. And when I do media training, I always tell people, I don't care how bad your cross was or how you feel about it, you have got to listen to it back or you've got to watch it back later um, because you will learn so much from that experience. Isn't it, isn't it interesting for people like yourself that have, who've chosen a particular career that is in the public that does demand the use of your voice and your ideas and you're talking and you're doing it on the fly and sometimes you've got research. Isn't it interesting that it's not easy to see yourself do it, even though you love doing it? Hmm. Um, well, I think that's because we're always our, look, for many people, we're our own worst critics, right? Um, I mean, uh, like, for example, right, um, you often might look at people on Instagram, you know, these Instagram influencers, um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, for example, a lot of young people who, um, you know, in a way make money or build big follow accounts off their looks, right? And, and many people would look at those people and go, oh, man, like, they would be so confident. They look so confident. 
but it's often those people that would have incredible insecurities um, and would be hyper-conscious of these tiny, tiny little things about themselves that no one else would notice. Um, and I think it's the same in journalism um, as well. Um, and, and anyone, in fact, frankly, who appears on TV or radio, I mean, you know, I can tell you as an as a interviewer that a lot of the stuff that people fret about, oh, I say I'm too much and I look away too much, I'm telling, I, I just tell them, look, I'm going to be really honest with you. Most people, when they're watching, are just not engaged enough to even notice all yeah, that stuff. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> true. And you know what's worth, worse when you sometimes edit a podcast? And I, I don't edit this this much unless my questions are really bizarre and rambly. You start to hear the, um, um, uh, like I take breaths before I ask questions and then I stumble and, you know, you, you hear all that stuff in a pretty severe way. I look on the voice thing. I just think it's really important. I, I think it's worth pointing out because you're in the public eye and I get around a little bit. And so to other people that might look like we're super confident, have our shit together. And maybe we do, maybe one of us does, and maybe that's you. But I think we, we often do this because we have a need to, we want to be, we want to express, we want to seen, be seen to be expressing and I struggle with my voice. I, it's a bit monotone. And when I hear my voice, because it's monotone, I, I can't help but think to some of the things that I grew up around that kind of drained me of emotion and the vocal expressiveness. That wasn't something that I grew up with as being a good thing. That was weakness or a quote unquote feminine, right? Just that Australian, whatever I grew up around, right? And let alone some of the chaos in the household. And I was like, you know what? I'm just turning off. I'm going to put headphones in. It's just music from now on. And so when I hear my voice sometimes, I'm like, oh, I just feel, it takes me back to that pain. Uh, there's two, two audio situations I've had in the past, past year that were kind of funny. One is I replayed to myself. I found this old interview I did with Ice Cube about 15 years ago, and, or maybe more, and my accent was a bit broader. And I was like, oh, God, that guy sounds really confident. And uh, I, think, I think it was last year I did a, an interview on a podcast called Rad Awakenings with Keiki. And he edited it nicely, and I talked a lot about growing up and some of the stuff that I was around and saw. And I was like, yep, I... I actually, that's me. I can hear it, but in general, it's so difficult. <laughs> but if you need to, but my, my point is for the people out there who are using that as an excuse to Kai's point earlier, it's no excuse. Do it because you have to do it because that's who you are. Right, Kai? Oh, look, I, I can tell you um, whether it's in the voiceover training that I've received or whether it's, or whether it was um, advice from veteran journalists, um, I was always told how nice your voice sounds is nowhere near as important as you think it is. And what matters much more and what people respond to much more is authenticity, right? Um, it's, it's having that, that the fact they can tell that you care, right? And, and, and I will take that over anyone with a good voice who tries to sound like a journalist or sound like a reporter any moment of the week um, and I sadly still see so many young reporters for example and I listen to their voiceovers on their radio and 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 tv pieces and clearly they're, they're speaking like they think oh this is how a tv reporter should be reading it out when they should be saying it like they were telling their friends what was going on mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. what, what's going on with news in Australia? You know, some of these topics, like the word diversity, I barely heard. And I left Australia seven years ago, and now I hear it all the time. And I see different, all sorts of different stories being told, finally, 
finally, and that's really recent, uh, and, and lots of new ideas popping up. But at the same time, what I see on the internet, which is maybe not the best referee for all these things, and what I see in the newspapers and on the news websites, it's like the same news beats from 40, 50 years ago. Sport in Australia is always... <laughs> It's always front page. I, I like sport. I'm not against sport, but it's always front page. And that's probably because some of the media organizations uh, have vested interest in some of the sporting uh, codes. They kind of own them or might own clubs or something like that, right? And then you've got property prices. Oh my God, that's such an Australian conversation. Uh, there's always something about superannuation, share prices, some yeah. silly some silly petty criminal thing that's going on. And that's kind of it. That's Australian yeah. news, right? Yeah. Yeah. Look, and <laughs> okay. Let, let, let me, okay. When being facetious, but I, it's how I feel. Yeah. Yeah. No, and that's quite reasonable. Um, and you know, what you're basically referring to is what, you know, in journalism we call, you know, kitchen table topics. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's because they're universal. Like they're things that everyone talks about. And what I quickly learned in journalism, we, um, started to get digital analytics, um, you know, when I was at Fairfax um, at the Financial Review, which is, you know, sort of like the Wall Street Journal, um, we started to get statistics telling us what stories were doing well and what ones were not, right? And what we learned with ruthless, uh, you know, quite ruthlessly, was that self-interest trumped almost everything, right? Um, and so that would include, you know, so any stories we had where we actually told people three reasons why you should buy shares in BHP or something like that, right? Um, those would just go off. Whereas kind of more um, cerebral pieces on, you know, here are some of the trends um, that we're seeing in the mining industry, for example, would maybe not be quite so popular, right? Um, so, so, and I think look, there's all sorts of reasons for that, Mark, it's uh, that, uh, I, I don't, I'm not quite sure where to begin, but okay, let's put it this way. For starters, I think people today have shorter attention spans than they used to be, right? Than they used to have. And look, of course, people have always been busy in their work lives and family lives over the, you know, for, for, you know, for, for eons now, right? Um, but I think our attention spans have been shortened quite a bit because of things like smartphones that have really shortened, I think, the average human attention span, um, TV, a lot of electronic medium, um, uh, look, you know, you can get really technical from a neurological point of view about how, um, you know, um, you know, the, the um, people get dopamine surges in their brain when they see something exciting, right? Um, and so that's going to prejudice news towards stuff that is really, um, you know, shocking or, in, or as most people would understand the term, sensational, right? Or sensationalist, right? Um, so that's why crime, like, so the more gruesome the crime, the better, because it gets people's attention. As the phrase goes, if it bleeds, it leads, right? Um, and then there's that self-interest factor that I mentioned. Um, and of course, sport, because people seek relief and escapism. And sport is one of those things that if that that is an equalizer for everyone regardless of your intellect or how good you are at the job everyone can uh, you know basically have a gossip about how their local sports team is doing and, and that's without even getting into the athletes private lives hmm. um so uh you know so what, so yeah what's, so what, what's the role of journalism i mean earlier you mentioned facts knowledge and then opinion and now activism what yes you must know a lot of journalists what do they say that the role is for them yeah. So the way journalists tend to see themselves is is as a um, uh, as a moderator of information, 
right? Um, as setting the public agenda. So that's one form, right? What are important things that are important to Australians, right? Um, or, or wherever their audience might be, right? Um, and the thing is that can be a very, very personal judgment, right? Now that said, right, if you just pick something that no one cares about and you put it out there and no, no, then, then, and no one watches it or listens to it, well, you know, you're not going to have a long career, right? Um, but, um, you know, sometimes, look, it's, uh, but sometimes um, you might, right? You might have developed um, a reputation um, of trustworthiness and so forth, um, say, for example, as an investigative reporter, right? Um, and that itself can become seen as prestigious, um, right? Um, but look, um, yeah, so I would say, um, yeah, look, I mentioned before, the ability to steal complex information and supply it to people. Um, now, some people say, you know what, I just love to tell stories, for example. So those are the people that will do, uh, you know, those are the reporters who will find out about people, really try to unpack their brains, a bit like what you do on this podcast, right? Um, and then present it um, to people. And others, it'll be because they're passionate about certain issues, like whether it's climate change or, 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 or gender or economics or whatever it might be. And they will present that information, but you know, with a bit of a slant because they see the role of journalism as also, you know, trying to make for a better world. Now, don't, I'm telling you right now, there's going to be very, very few journalists that will ever say that out loud because the legacy of journalism is still strong enough today that people know they're not supposed to say that they're biased. They're meant to say, hey, I just present the information fairly and, um, you know, let people make up their own minds when that's increasingly not the case in reality. Well, and was it ever? I mean, the idea of bias, and no, it's... So oh, it's been around for so long. I mean, everyone's biased. <laughs> no, agreed. But but one thing that's really changed, Mark, see, um, in the old days, you'd have a lot of reporters that would have their own personal opinions. Um, but because back then journalism was the main way people received factual information, then that still had value. And therefore, editors and, and news organisations could still hold their reporters to a standard where they were told, I don't care what your personal opinion is or my personal opinion is, what people want to know are the facts. And then, then you can add a bit of analysis as well. But these days, for mainstream news organisations, they don't have the monopoly on reporting facts anymore, Mark. Like anyone with a website and a smartphone can now report on breaking news, right? And, and, and tell people facts. And if 50 different news organizations are reporting the facts, why on earth, Mark, would someone want to subscribe to your channel um, or pay money to consume your journalism, right? Yeah. And, the, and, the answer, and so therefore, the only way that media organizations can stay in business, at least commercial ones, um, is... Um, by offering something extra, adding value to their journalism besides reporting facts, something that other media outlets won't. And the only way I think most of them believe they can do that um, is through offering analysis of the facts. And analysis, of course, is just another way of saying opinion. Yeah, and yeah. that is why today um, opinion and bias and so forth um, is much stronger than it used to be um, and why it's so important to read widely and read with discernment because you're going to find very few organisations that are genuinely impartial and present multiple sides um, of a story. Yeah, I think I'm reacting to 
I, I, the fact, or well, what's a fact to me is that I, I think often the way we use bias in this situation, it's too weak a word to use. And then sometimes you might have an opinion about something in life and someone will say, well, that's your bias as if your opinion's not valid and therefore <laughs> everything's not valid. It's like, ah, Oh, no, absolutely. Oh, well, I mean, just think of the term white privilege, for example, right? Something that, you know, people will just say a statement and you, if you're white and someone says, oh, well, that's just your white privilege speaking, there's, there's nothing you can do about it because you're white. And, 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 and that's why, I mean, you know, that, it's essentially um, a bias. I suppose another way you could think of it is, it's a, is as a form of prejudice, right? Um, and whether you're using a term like white privilege or, of course, um, you know, whether you, you prejudge someone because they're of a Muslim background or a Chinese background or because they're female. Both of those are prejudices and they're incredibly unfair, partly because they're inaccurate, right? Um, you know, um, there are so many exceptions to generalizations that we make. Um, and secondly, because, um, you know, people just don't like being um, prejudged. It's a very helpless feeling. Um, and anyone who's ever had someone, you know, abuse them, you know, racially, like, you know, I've, I've had it some points in my life, um, or, or, or whether it is someone that who's been told, oh, I'm sorry, you're a man, you're not allowed to talk about these issues, they're only for women. Um, it's a very disillusioning and unpleasant experience. And that can, I think, I think in many ways, make, make all of us quite hostile towards people that use those labels on us. It's going to be interesting to see which of the labels and which words from the past year or two survive the next five years. Last question, Kai. So I do think there's a pretty strong overlap between journalism and, and strategy work in that you have to find things out about certain topics. Sometimes you have a few hours, sometimes you have a day, a week, whatever it is, but there's often time pressure as well. You then have to synthesize a lot of different information sources into some kind of coherent point of view that you can express in a way that will affect other people who might have more or less domain expertise, right? What do you think someone who's never been a journalist but has been a strategist can learn from a journalist? Hmm. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, I think we've covered a few of them already. Um, but, um, you know, you know, I, I would say that the importance um, of listening and understanding um, the person at the other end, whether it's an interview subject or a client, um, is is crucial, right? And the thing is, is that because journalism often, as I mentioned, involves performance and being able to, I'm not sure if selling is the right word, but certainly telling a story, often people, I think, can sometimes forget about that listening part because they think, oh, no, I just need to be able to get up there, present, mm -hmm. sell sell whatever it is or sell whatever strategy that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to. Um, but that isn't going to work if you have not correctly understood your audience um, or the person at the other end, mm -hmm. including whether it's a client or not. So definitely listening. Okay. Um, and, you know, and, and in a way closely related to that is empathy, right? Um, because how, you know, being able to put yourself in the other person's shoes and understand what jargon terms that they aren't going to understand or, or, or what fancy terms that you think make you sound really good but ultimately don't actually make a difference to someone, being able to weed that out of your language, right, that requires uh, empathy and understanding and it's going to make you a much more effective 
uh, communicator. Um, so, um, you know, and uh, yeah, so look, but, but I would also say you can also learn a lot um, from the failings or, or, or the shortcomings of journalism as well, um, you know, which is, you know, um, sometimes if you become too powerful, um, you can become resistant to change. You can become resistant to other ideas. Um, the danger of groupthink, um, of only surrounding yourself by people who think the same as you, um, is going to be um, is extremely limiting for society um, when journalists think that way. And I can only imagine that if you're in um, a, a you know, a strategic uh, profession, um, that having a closed mind, um, whether someone, you know, whether it's the hottest trend or not, or whether it's on trend or not, um, it can only limit um, how effective you're going to be uh, in helping your client. Good points. Yeah, the listening one is an important one because I think as, as people get into the career and they start to feel that they're getting a bit of respect and they know what they're doing, their word count can increase. And sometimes they might be in a pitch and a client asks, a potential client asks a simple question and then the agency people talk at that person for 10 or 20 minutes as opposed to saying well what do you do you have a point of view on that how would you answer that question tell me about an experience in your life where this happened and so on and so forth and to actually listen and to to use the the person's question to ask them questions so i think that's a useful skill you know what i do have one very last question because you spent a little bit of time in marketing with your decade plus now in journalism how would you approach marketing differently if you could go back in a time machine how would journalism make you a different marketer <laughs> look um okay in in one way journalism wouldn't have helped me um because my marketing role involves um a lot of um a lot of how do i put this i had to get 10 different sign-offs right so i'd have a piece of marketing that had to go out and being able to chase up different stakeholders and get their signatures and so forth on it that's not something you have to do as a journalist mm -hmm. um you basically write your piece submit it you're one editor who looks over it makes changes and you know there's usually not this multiple stakeholder sign-off stuff that that was what really you know um stymied me with marketing mm. but um but you know, look, you know, fundamentally, right? Um, the similarity there are that you've mentioned some of the similarities between marketing and journalism. Both of them involve communicating to a large amount of people and being able to take complex topics and put them in a simple way that that large amount of people can understand or, or whatever target audience understands. Um, so, you know, um, if I, oh, oof, yeah, man, if I, if I had to. Look, uh, hmm. you know, Mark, I'm going to answer this slightly differently, right? See, I actually think it was my time. So I did study a marketing degree and I would actually say it was marketing that taught me quite a bit about journalism, right? So for it, and that gave me, I think, an advantage when I went to journalism mm -hmm. in the sense that marketing does tell you that you have to understand your broader audience. So I'm not talking about so much on a one-on-one -on -one, 
um, pitch, for example, or a one-on-one -on -one meeting. But in, you know, in order to roll something out to a large number of people, um, market, uh, one of the things I really took to heart during my marketing studies and, and work was I loved getting to understand the audience. The you know segmenting people, qualitative analysis as well as the quant analysis, um, doing surveys, all of that work I found fascinating, and I just couldn't believe that people would put a product out uh, without consulting that. And then when I went into journalism, I found that a lot of people in journalism don't. Um, in fact, often journalists are told that um, you know thinking too much about what the audience um, thinks. Um, could compromise your journalism. In fact, the news outlets will actually separate the commercial and editorial uh, departments physically um, because they don't want journalist influence per se. Um, so I'm not, I, I know I've probably answered it um, in the reverse way, but I suppose I would say to someone that is in a marketing type of profession, um, is, is make sure that you understand that that getting to know the audience emphasis of the profession um, is something you should never give up. Um, and you should never take for granted um, or underrate, no matter how enthusiastic and accomplished and confident uh, you become in your career. Hmm. Interesting. I didn't expect you to go there, but uh, uh, that's a really interesting answer. Kai, it was awesome talking to you today. Where can people find you on the internet? <laughs> well, I'm on Twitter at Kai Business, um, and Kai is spelt K-Y, and I, my website is kaichow.com. And uh, when I eventually launch my podcast, that's where they'll find it there. But uh, yeah, kaichow.com is where my media consulting uh, business is. And uh, look, I have a feeling if you hit the Google button, other than a Chinese restaurant in Adelaide, um, the main search result that'll come up will be my various... Uh, <laughs> will be my various appearances in different media outlets. <laughs> I'm laughing because I did that search earlier and I found that restaurant. I was like, oh, wow, that's cool. <laughs> you know, every single time, Mark, one of my friends goes to Adelaide, I get a post tagging me with a photo of that restaurant. My sister was so excited when she went to Adelaide. She came back with menus, business cards. Oh, and uh, yes, hey, well, one day I'll go there. We'll have to improve your online presence so that you're, <laughs> you're able to dominate the search results there. That's funny that a restaurant in Adelaide could take up so much Google space. Uh, that's uh, awesome. All right. So it's Kai Chow, K-Y-C-H-O-W.com. You can find Kai there. Kai, thank you so much for joining us on Sweathead today, my man. Be well. You too. Thanks a lot, Mark. Keep conquering. Peace.